Kids, you are dismissed up to King's table. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. Um, as we get started this morning, I'd like to thank uh, a group of people who um, serve throughout the week uh, here at CF that not a lot of people get to see. So as you know, if you've been around CF for a while, you know that we've been uh, doing something we're calling the two-year journey, where we've been reading through the Bible together, where every week uh, we're looking at, it's two chapters every day for six days a week, and then uh, on Sunday we take a day off, and then throughout that two years we also have a couple of weeks built in um, as kind of a rest break period. And we're doing that because the Word of God is living and active, and we want to do this together as a way to not only get each other into the Word and hold each other accountable, but just to see what God has for us um, as a group as we're reading the Bible together. And so every week when you come in, uh, you get the bulletin, you get the order, you know, service order and everything, but you also get that folded up piece of paper um, <clears throat> that are reflections. So different people in our church uh, will read ahead in the two-year two journey, and they will pick out passages or chapters, uh, and then they'll write sort of a, just a short reflection on them. Just kind of, they take it in and they say, this is how, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what this chapter, this verse, this passage made me uh, think about. And so we, we give that to you guys every week as a way to kind of help you as you're reading during the week, as you're taking part in the two-year journey, as to know that, A, you're not doing it by yourself. There's other people doing it. Um, and B, to just kind of get you thinking and interacting with the text. <clears throat> Excuse me. Get you interacting with the text. And so um, I, I just want to thank everybody who's written for our two-year journey, everyone who's written reflections. I really appreciate it. Um, I read them every week, so uh, and, and I know that they speak to me. They, they bear fruit in my life. They challenge me in the way I'm thinking about the text. So thank you very much. If that's something that interests you, if you'd like to write one of those reflections, you don't have to be uh, a Bible student. You don't have to be... Uh, you could just write. It's just about it's people reading the text and then responding to it. Um, and so if you're interested in doing that, go ahead and uh, just write it on a Connect card and drop it in an offering plate, uh, and I'd love to fill, follow up with you and get you involved. Because the more voices we can have doing those reflections, I think the, just the more fun it is and the cool, it's just cool to see and hear that from different people. So thank you to everybody who writes for those uh, reflections. This morning, we are going to be in the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that with you. Nobody's going to stop you on the way out if you're walking out with one of those Bibles. Um, that is our gift to you. And if you are using a seatback Bible, you're looking for page 975. 975 in the seatback Bibles uh, to be in the book of Galatians. So we're going to be starting a new series this morning looking at the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. So as you're turning there, I'm going to read what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's found in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That is what Paul lists out as the fruit of the Spirit. And this list is going to keep us busy pretty much through the rest of the summer. Uh, my goal for this series is to help us see the importance of this list, to see the importance of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Um, why is this important? So if you've been around for 2017, uh, you know my unofficial kind of theme for 2017 for us as a church is intentionality. Trying to be intentional. Intentional with um, our growth as individuals, as Christians, as well as our growth in our relationships within a body as a, as a church. Uh, intentionality with how we're interacting with the, with the neighborhood outside of us. Intentionality with um, just where we're going forward, how we're planning for the future. And so this kind of fits into that because we just spent five months in First John where John was writing and, say, and telling us, ground yourselves in the gospel. Ground yourselves in what you know to be truth. Ground yourselves in the truth of the gospel. And so 
If we are intentional about rooting ourselves in the gospel, then from that, the fruit of the Spirit will grow. So as we go through this series, and like I said, this is going to take us through most of the summer. Uh, as we go through this series, I have a, an, an anchoring point, a kind of a, a definition, if you will, of what the fruit of the Spirit is and why it's important to us. And this is going to be the point that we come back to regularly throughout this series. Uh, and it says, basically, the fruit of the Spirit is tangible evidence in a Christian's life of God's love and the gospel's power. Fruit of the Spirit is tangible evidence in a Christian's life of God's love and the gospel's power. That is going to be kind of home base for us throughout the summer. That is what we're going to be looking at. As we look at the different elements, the different angles of what the fruit of the Spirit looks like, this is what we're coming back to. The fruit of the Spirit is tangible evidence in a Christian's life of God's love and the gospel's power. And so that's where we're going to land this morning. That's kind of the final point of this morning's sermon. Um, and to get there, we're going to do kind of an overview of chapter 5 of Galatians, where the fruit of the Spirit is found. So we're going to, do, we're going to look at chapter 5 of Galatians, and Paul presents a problem in chapter 5 uh, that basically it's the same problem that takes two different forms, but he also gives us a solution for that problem. So a little bit of background before we jump into Galatians. Paul is writing to a church in Galatia, thus the book of Galatians. And this church is mainly made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, okay? Um, and so we see an issue happen in this chapter, in this book really, uh, that happened pretty often in the early days in the New Testament church. Right? A lot of people will say, we need to take our churches back to what it was like in, when the church first started, back in Acts. It was not all sunshine and rainbows when the church started. It was hard work, and it was messy. Because you have two basic camps of people when the church started. You have Jews who have become Christians. And those Jews are grounded and faithful to Judaism. They have been doing Judaism. They have been doing the rituals and customs. That's part of who they are. It's their culture. It's their DNA. That's what they know as their religion. And they've been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's just built into who they are. And then on the other side, you have Gentiles. You have non-Jews. You have people who are coming to worship because they either met Jesus or they heard the gospel preached. And they heard this message of grace and forgiveness and love. And so they want to, they buy into that. They, they accept Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and they become Christians. But most of them, their background in religion is either non-existent or it's pagan idolatry, which most of the time involved sex with prostitutes or self-mutilation. So any type of background that they have in religion is really skewed. And so you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles, and these two very different groups now have to come together and try and figure out how do we be the church? How do we be a community? How do we come together and worship? And so a lot of issues come from that. And so we're going to see that this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, to Galatians 5. So we please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for another day to worship you another day to gather. Um, God, we thank you for sunshine. We thank you for warmth. Uh, God, we come to you this morning because you are the God of grace. You are the God of grace who pours out the gift of love into our hearts. And so, God, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you give us peace, peace from the chaos of this world. God, we come asking, to asking you to renew our spirits, spirits and draw us closer to yourself. God, I pray that you just move in this place. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to read, uh, we're going to start with Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. So you can go ahead and read with me. 
Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Have you ever been driving around in the city, uh, or maybe this has happened to you, have you ever been driving down the street and you see that car parked and it's got the boot on its wheel? Uh, or maybe that's happened to you. What you know about that car is that car ain't going anywhere. That car is stuck. It is not going anywhere anytime soon. In this passage, Paul is addressing an issue between the two camps that we talked about, between the Jews and the Gentiles, the issue of circumcision. So what had happened was that some of the Jewish believers had gotten into the church, started to interact with the Gentiles, and said, okay, look, if you're going to become part of the family of God, if you're going to become part of what we're doing here, if you're going to be accepted by God, that means that the men in your families need to be circumcised. It's been a mark of Judaism. It's who we are. God's people are marked by circumcision. That's kind of been just the standard MO forever. And so you guys need to be circumcised. And the Gentiles hear that and say, no, thank you. Because they said, look, we heard grace. We heard forgiveness of sins. We heard the kingdom is here. We heard these messages. We didn't hear anything about circumcision. And so there was conflict going on. There was anger and confusion and what started to happen were some of these Gentiles started to buy into this. Because again, their background in religion, their background in worship was so skewed, so messed up, they didn't know any better. And so they start to buy into this and start to say, okay, so I guess we can accept Jesus' death on the cross and be circumcised, and that's how we're saved. That's how we find freedom. That's how we find redemption in God. And so in this passage, Paul says in verse 2, look, if you want to make circumcision that important, if you want to make circumcision part of salvation, then in reality, in fact, you are disregarding Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because when you add anything to the requirements of salvation beyond faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, you are negating the work Christ did for you at the cross. By adding to what Christ did, you are in essence saying to Jesus, look, I appreciate I appreciate the beatings, I appreciate the cross, I appreciate everything you went through, but it wasn't enough. I still need to do a little bit of work. So, thanks Jesus, but I got this. That's what we're telling him. Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You will get no benefit from what he did if you add to the gospel. Because in actuality, you don't trust the gospel. You don't actually trust in Christ, you trust in your own works. Paul goes on in verse 3 and he says, if you want to accept circumcision as a requirement for salvation, then you need to accept the whole law. You don't get to pick and choose the additions to salvation. If you want to make it about works, if you want to make it about the law, then you have to make it about the entire law, the whole thing. If you want to try and win your way into the kingdom, then you have to take on the entire weight of the law, all 613 of them. And you have to keep them perfectly all the time. The problem with keeping them perfectly all the time is you didn't keep them per perfectly in the past. So you're not perfect. But they didn't want to comprehend that. In verse 4 he says, you are severed from Christ if you do this. You are getting rid of grace. You are letting go of grace and instead trying to justify yourselves under the law, under what you can do, under your actions. 
And so for us today, well, you might not get wrapped up in the Old Testament law, right? That's probably not an argument that comes up a whole lot in church today, but this is still a problem for us today. This is still a trap we're falling into today, and some of you might be falling into this trap and not even aware that you're doing it. Because we don't make arguments about circumcision. We make arguments, we start to judge each other based on things like church attendance. We judge each other based on how involved in the church are you? What kind of ministries are you doing or not doing? What kind of external acts are you doing that puts you on a different plane than everybody else, that makes you more mature than everybody else? Or in actuality, we start to think, what is that person next to me not doing that makes me better than them? And we start to create these divisions within the church. Now, things like being in church all the time, that's a good thing. I'm here every week. It's good. Serving in church is good. I tell you guys every week, get involved because it's fun. It's a good thing to do. It's a healthy thing to do. But when our motivation goes from, I'm involved in church, I'm part of the community because it's good and joyful, because it's a response to what God has done for me, because I want to serve other people. When we go from that motivation to, I have to do these things, because if I don't do them, nobody will do them. Or, I have to be there, because if I'm not there, it won't be done correctly. Or, without me, it won't happen. Without me, how in the world will they manage? Or if I don't show up, what are they going to think about me? What are they, how are they going to judge me? I feel guilty because I wasn't at every event because I missed a potluck. When we go from joy and pleasure and a response to God to obligation and guilt and shame, we have taken good things and turned them into God things. And what I mean by that is you've taken something good like being part of a community and serving and being involved and living out your Christian faith and made it the most important thing possible. You have turned it into an idol in your own life. And that's this idea that we become Christians. We get into this relationship with God and we accept the grace and we have this relationship. He's our dad. We're there. We're his children but then we spend the rest of our lives constantly doing stuff, constantly working, constantly trying to impress him or appease him. That is not what the gospel is about. And oftentimes we can find ourselves caught up in evaluating how our relationship with God is going based on how much stuff am I doing, how many things am I attending, how many places am I serving, what kind of checklist I have, how impressive, how impressive am I. And the problem with that is that you can never do enough. You can never do enough to try and impress and earn God's favor. When you decide you want to stand on your own actions, on your own works, when you put Jesus' sacrifice on the sidelines, you are now subject to meeting God's demand of perfection. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord your God. Be perfect as I am perfect, says God Almighty. That's the line God draws. That's the standard he says. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you want to spend eternity with me, perfection is what I demand. And the problem with that, I don't think I need to ask, but anybody perfect in here? No. And so that's the line. You can try all you want to earn God's favor, to try and earn your way and win your way and work your way to perfection, but you can't do it. You are that car on the side of the road with a boot on it. You aren't going anywhere. You are stuck because you've already sinned. You have already 
gotten yourself stuck, when you are trying to impress God by fulfilling the law, by trying to work your way to righteousness, by trying to earn your way on your own works, you are stuck by the sins you have already committed. And in contrast with that, in verse 6, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you put your faith in Jesus to make you righteous and holy in the eyes of God, and you stand not on your own works, but on the perfect work of Jesus, then it doesn't matter how impressive you are or how messed up you are. What matters is your faith found in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and the ability to be seen as holy before God. And it is out of that faith comes a working of love. It is a love for God and thus love for other people that is our motivator and the way our faith takes action. And so we see the first problem Paul has presented to us. We're stuck in the law. We're stuck trying to earn our way, win our way, work our way to God. And really, we're stuck. He gives us a second problem. If you skip down to verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. But don't use this as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. One time I was coming, uh, I went to school out in the suburbs, out in Deerfield, and I was driving into the city, I was going to a show, I think, that night. Uh, and so I'm on the highway, and it's one of those two-lane two lane highways, right? So there's two lanes going one way, two lanes going the other way, and in between them there's the big grass ditch um, separator, right? And so I'm driving, and there was an accident or something, and traffic is just backed up for miles and miles. I'm just stuck. I'm not going anywhere. And I realized pretty quickly, all right, I'm going to miss the show. I'm not going to make it there on time. I might as, not, might as well not even go into the city. Might as well just go back to school. And so I'm watching other cars uh, kind of pull off, go into the grass ditch, and then there wasn't a whole lot of traffic coming back the other way. So they would like go into the grass ditch and then just pop up and drive on the highway back the other way. And so I said, I can do that. That seems like a good idea. Uh, so I pull over and I get into the grass <clears throat> and I'm watching the cars, I'm watching the cars go by and I look for an opening and I find an opening and I hit the gas and my car doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> I hit the gas again and I don't, I hear the engine revving, but my car's not moving. I roll down my window, I hit the gas and I look, my back tire is just spinning, but it's not going anywhere. I open my door and look and there's just mud covering like half of my wheels. I am stuck in the mud. I am helpless and hopeless, stuck in the middle of these two expressway lanes. And I can't go anywhere. Paul says, Christ has given us freedom to make decisions. Freedom to make choices. But he warns us in verse 13, do not let that freedom lead you to the works of the flesh. So what does he mean by the works of the flesh? He's not talking about our skin. This is a Bible, this is a phrase that throughout the Bible about our natural sin nature. That thing in us that is hardwired from birth that tells us we are the most important thing in the world. We should please ourselves any way we see fit. We do what we want. And even the good stuff that we do is motivated by a selfish, selfish ambition to be presented as good. That is the work of the flesh. That part of us that rebels against God by nature. Paul says, be careful. Do not let the freedom you have in Christ lead you to pursuing the works of the flesh. 
because they end in pain and destruction. He goes on to say in verse 17 that the flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another. You can't pursue both at the same time. You are either acting and pursuing the flesh or you are acting and pursuing the spirit. But they are counter to each other. We talked about this a lot in 1 John. You can't be in light and in darkness at the same time. You are either in light or in darkness. These things are at odds with one another. He says they are like oil and water, night and day, cubs and cardinals. They cannot get along. Paul then says in verses 19 through 21, he says, these are the works of the spirit. They're works of the flesh. They are evident. Basically, he says, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the works of the flesh. You know what pursuing these desires look like. And so he gives a list. This list is not an exhaustive list. Paul is not saying here, as long as it's not in this list, you can do it. That's not what we're doing here. He gives us a list. And these are some of the obvious ways the works of the flesh carry themselves out. This is many of the ways it takes shape. So some scholars have gone on and classified Paul's list into four categories. And I want to break them down for us real quick. The first one are the sensual, sexual sins. We see sexual immorality. That word is porneia in the Greek. It's where we get our word for pornography. It's kind of a, a catch-all word in the Greek for sexual immorality. He talks about impurity, sensuality. That word is lewdness. One of the commentaries I read said, the bad person will usually try to hide their sin. But the person who has lewdness in his soul does not care how much he shocks public opinion so long as he can gratify his desires. Another commentary I read said, There is ample evidence to show that the sexual life of the Greco-Roman world at the time of the New Testament was sheer chaos. Such evidence has come not from Christian writers, but from pagans who were disgusted at the unspeakable sexual immorality. We think it's bad in 2017. Things haven't changed. Greco-Roman culture at that time was chaos when it came to sexuality. So that's the first comment, first category of the sexual sins. Then he says the religious sins. We see idolatry and sorcery. Because it's not just wrong or unhelpful to worship false gods. It is a sin against God. What I thought was interesting this week as I was doing research, that word for sorcery, that word for witchcraft, is actually where we get our word for pharmacy. Because in that day, when you were pursuing witchcraft, when you were pursuing those things, usually it involved taking hallucinogens. It would take drugs so that you could get in touch with the spirits. And Paul says, these things are works of the flesh. And then the third category are the relationship sins. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. How do we treat one another? What are our relationships to the people around us who also carry the image of God in them, who also have value in them just because they were created by God? They intrinsically have value. How do we treat the people around us? I don't think it's a coincidence that this section of the list is the biggest one. Paul is concerned, God is concerned with our relationships with one another. How do we interact with the people around us? And the fourth category are the social sins, drunkenness and orgies being out of control and chaotic, wasteful and unrestrained, usually happening in a group context, putting your sin on display for people. And then Paul ends it with, and things like these. Because again, this is not an extensive list, but a way to see pretty clearly what it looks like to pursue the works of the flesh. Now, verse 21 says, those who do such things, 
those who do such things, those who make a practice of these things, those who regularly pursue these things, those who regularly and habitually ignore the Holy Spirit and instead pursue these things, he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what's at stake here. That's what we're talking about here. For the person who ignores God and instead pursues the work of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their poor decisions have left them stuck in the mud, helpless and hopelessly spinning their tires. And so we see the same problem happening again. They're stuck. Stuck in the works of the flesh. Stuck in the works of the law. It doesn't matter whether you are stuck by the law or you are trying to earn and work your way to God or you are stuck in the works of the flesh pursuing things that will do nothing but leave you empty and hurt. The result is the same. You are stuck and in need of help. So what's the solution? The solution is the gospel. The solution is the good news that there is a way to get unstuck. The good news that even if you find yourself stuck trying to earn and win your favor to God, or you find yourself stuck in the mud and mess of the works of your flesh, God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and to die for those sins. It is the good news that Jesus breaks the chains. He pulls the boot off the car. It is the good news that Jesus can pull you out of the mud. The gospel is powerful enough to overcome any and every sin you commit. The gospel frees us from having to follow the law. Look at verse 1. Jump up to verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law. For freedom Christ has set us free. Jesus' death happened so that you could experience freedom in your life. So that you no longer need the external guide of the law. The law was good. The law is a gift from God. It was a gift to the Jews. We corrupted it. Man corrupted it and made it this checklist of trying to impress and earn God's favor. But the law is good. It was this external way for the people to know how to live a life that was pleasing to God, how to live the life the best way they could. But after Jesus came and he gives us the Holy Spirit, we now have an internal, we now have an internal guide. We have the Holy Spirit in us, so we don't need to live under the law because we have the Holy Spirit in us. You have been set free from the checklists and the work-based lifestyle because the work has been done by Jesus at the cross. At the cross, he said, it is finished. The work has been completed. You can do nothing to earn God's favor. Instead, it is given to you as a gift. And to receive this gift, all that needs to happen is to believe that Christ's death on the cross is not only enough to forgive, to forgive your sins, but it is the only way to do so. In Christ, you are set free. The gospel has the power to set you free, to let you rest, to let you just be. It lets you be free to say, you know what? I don't have it all together. I am a mess, and I'm trying to listen to the Holy Spirit, and I'm trying to do the right thing, but I don't always do it well. There is grace there to be had. It is at that place where you can actually admit that you don't know what you're doing. It's that place where you can actually admit that you can't do it on your own, that you are stuck. It's at that place when you are willing to stop trying to earn and impress God that Jesus sets you free for freedom. The gospel takes the boot off the car. And the gospel can pull you out of the mud. The works of the flesh will kill you. Maybe not physically, but they will spiritually kill you. They will keep you from heaven. 
Not only that, they will keep you from living well here and now because you can look at the works of the flesh, you can look at those things, and they don't end well. They don't end happy. I think we can basically universally look at that list, even if you're not a Christian this morning, even if you don't have a church background, you can look at what he lists out as the work of the flesh, and you can say, who wants to be around that person who is prone to jealousy or fits of anger? No one can be truly happy and satisfied living a life of total sexual immorality. These things are empty. Satan may dress them up. He may make them look appealing. But at the end of the day, you leave yourself empty and alone and erect. You feel stuck and helpless. But the gospel, the gospel leaves no one helpless. The gospel leaves no one hopeless. The gospel says there is no sin too big. There is no one too far gone. There is patience there. There is grace. There is forgiveness. There is new life to be had. And the gospel is the thing that propels that. When we regularly and daily rediscover, re-remind ourselves of our need for a Savior, look, we will live in and we will be in battle with the works of our flesh. That's part of life. It is a regular and consistent battle. And sometimes we're going to fail. Sometimes we are going to sin and we are going to give in to the works of the flesh. But the good news is that's not the end of the story. We can confess, we can repent, we can continue to move towards God and pursue what he has for us. And we can remember that those sins are forgiven and not held against us in any way. Through Jesus' death, we have new life. The gospel pulls us out of the mud and puts us back on the road. So then the question we have is, once you get unstuck, how do we keep from going back? How do we keep from getting restuck? We walk in the Spirit. Skip down to verse 16 with me. Paul says, I, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then actually, if you skip down to verse 18, he also says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Walk by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. He's saying the same thing here. It's, it's allowing the Holy Spirit to take the lead in our lives. It's trusting Him for guidance in each and every decision we are making. So how do we do that? Firstly, you can only do that if you are a Christian, because if you aren't a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So the first thing, step one, is to accept and trust in Jesus' death on the cross for your sins. Accept the grace and help that is being offered to you. And in doing so, you receive so much. You receive, you see that your sins are forgiven. Your life is made new. You are adopted into the family of God. You become a son or daughter of the most high, perfect, holy creator of all existence. And you receive the Holy Spirit. Walking by the Spirit means everything you do, from hitting the snooze in the morning to when your head hits the pillow at the end of the day, everything should be done by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I said it earlier that the flesh and the spirit are at odds with each other. They are at war with one another. Pastor John Piper said it this way, walking by the spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. So which one are you choosing to listen to? Which one are you choosing to be led by, to walk in? How well are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Because the flesh and the spirit both are trying to be the loudest voice inside of you. And so walking by the spirit means turning the volume down on the flesh and turning the volume way up on the Holy Spirit. And we do this 
through a couple of different ways. God has given us the tools to do that. We do that by being in the Word, by being in God's Word regularly, dwelling on it, meditating on it, reading it, memorizing it, consuming it. The more truth you can put in, the easier it becomes to turn the volume on the Holy Spirit up because this is God's Word, God revealing Himself to you. It looks like being in prayer regularly, regular communication with God, regularly talking to Him, bringing different situations to him and bringing different thoughts and ideas to him. Not just the big scary stuff. Not just the, I'm stuck in the middle of the road and my car is stuck. God, I need help. But bringing the, God, thank you for today. God, thank you for lunch. God, thank you for sunshine. God, I'm struggling with this. God, this situation's happening. Just talking to him, regular conversation with him. Being in connection, in communication with him on a regular basis. And then being in community. Being in Christian community, not just showing up, but actually showing up and opening up. Not just throwing in 20 minutes late and then bailing right as that final blessing happens, but actually engaging with the people around you. Actually engaging with other Christians, letting them into your world, letting other Christians speak into the things you are dealing with and struggling with. Letting other Christians celebrate alongside you, letting other Christians enjoy the things you are enjoying. The more we are focusing and centering ourselves on God, the more we are putting truth into us, the more we are con uh, communicating with God, the more truth we are consuming, the easier it gets to turn the volume up on the Holy Spirit and be led by Him. But then you've got to actually listen. You've got to be okay being quiet. You've got to be okay trusting. When you think you hear the Holy Spirit telling you to act, telling you to move, you've got to be okay trusting and knowing that it's Him. And you'll know that it's him because he will only lead you toward things that will glorify God. He will only lead you towards things that will glorify God. We have to listen. We have to be willing in a world of chaos and constant noise and distraction to shut those things out and listen. Because the Holy Spirit will speak. He is always speaking. It's just a matter of whether or not we're paying attention. And he will speak in different ways. Maybe it's an actual voice or a feeling you feel in your soul. Maybe it's a book you're reading or a passage of scripture that you've read a thousand times. And maybe this time you read it and it's like Paul is writing specifically to you in that moment in your situation. That's the Holy Spirit doing work and revealing things to you. Maybe it's a song you're listening to. It's a book you're reading. It's a person speaking truth in your life. I have been blessed. I have a deep bench of Christian guys and girls who I can go to when I'm wrestling with something, when I'm struggling for something. I like to ask a lot of people, get a lot of input. And I've been blessed to have a deep bench of Christians who will speak truth into my life. And usually I know when the Holy Spirit's trying to tell me something when all like 20 of them say the exact same thing to me. That's the Holy Spirit saying, Tim, pay attention. I need you to hear me on this. See, the Holy Spirit is not limited to one form of communication. He is always talking, always trying to steer and guide us. We just need to listen. And it is when we listen, when we are letting the Holy Spirit guide us, when we have the volume on Him turned way up, we will see in our lives the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Note that Paul uses the phrase works of the flesh and he counters that with the fruit of the Spirit. Works involve effort. It involves labor, straining, and exhaustion. Work is work. 
No matter how hard you work, though, you can't create fruit. Fruit is a byproduct of life. Fruit grows. Fruit is sweet, and it nourishes us. If a fruit tree is healthy, it will inevitably grow fruit. Fruit is a sign of a healthy tree. When we are living by the Spirit, the Spirit will produce in us fruit. It is inevitable. The works of the flesh are on us. They are our actions, our decisions, what we can produce. But the fruit of the Spirit is not about what we can do. It's not about what we can grow. It is the Spirit working in us. So when you are following the Spirit, you will see Him producing fruit in you. Him doing work in you. And you notice that it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is not like the gifts of the Spirit where everyone might have a couple of them, but nobody has all of them. This list, the fruit of the Spirit, these are all bunched together. This is like taking a hybrid. I tried to, I was going to take a picture and like just mash a bunch of fruit together. That's what's going on here. It's taking an apple, banana, pear, watermelon, and squishing them all together into one fruit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's a bunch of things. And so a Christian walking in the fruit of the Spirit will see all of these things growing in them. Now, some are going to come more naturally. And some are going to be a little more gradual, take a little more time. But again, that's how fruit grows, right? Some fruit grows quicker than others. It's a gradual thing. It's a process. But if you are a Christian, you cannot say, you know what? I really have that fruit of, that fruit of joy. I got that down. But the fruit of self-control, that's just not for me. That's just not my gifting. That's just not how I'm wired. All of the fruit is being cultivated in a Christian walking in the Spirit. Some of it may take more time than others, but all of it is being cultivated in you. And so we see a difference in the flesh versus the spirit. The flesh produces that which everyone basically can agree on is not good. Everything in the works of the flesh is dangerous. It is going to lead to destruction. It's not healthy or helpful outside of your own selfish desires. Whereas the fruit of the spirit is good. It's good, and it's not just good for you, but it's good for others as well because fruit nourishes. Fruit nourishes you, and fruit nourishes others. The Holy Spirit is always working, always cultivating, making us more and more like Christ for our good and God's glory. And because these things are inevitable fruits produced in us by the Holy Spirit when we are walking in the Holy Spirit, it's important for us to identify them in our lives and see what does the fruit of love look like in my life? What does it look like for the Spirit to produce in me growing faithfulness and self-control? What do these things look like? Let's identify them. Let's acknowledge them. We should be aware that the Spirit is cultivating these things in us and celebrate that and rejoice in that and give thanks to God for that. And like I said, fruit is not grown just to be pretty. It's not grown to just be on display. God is growing fruit in you to bring glory to Him and so that you can serve others so that you can serve others with your love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not for your glory. It's not so that you can become conceited, as Paul says at the end of the chapter, or so that you can produce envy in others. It's not so you say, look how joyful I am in comparison to you, and you can rub it in other people's face. It's to serve and love and care for your brothers and sisters to the glory of God. The gospel gets you unstuck. And when you believe and trust in the gospel, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, when you are listening to him and you are listening and letting him lead, he will produce fruit in you. 
Because the fruit of the Spirit is the tangible evidence in a Christian's life of God's love and the gospel's power.